Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, August the 20th in the year 2020, broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Just like 2008, people are not making payments for rent or mortgage in record numbers, and most of them are not covered by any formal agreement with anyone much less anyone authorized to offer forbearance or modification or settlement. When the moratoriums are declared over, the crash will start. And I promise you it will be worse than anything we have seen before. So don't wait until the last minute. Start preparing. Even where the homeowner has not won yet. I have cases where a payment has not been made in over 12 years. That's because the banks put it to the back of the pile and they know that they have a high probability of a loss. This isn't about luck. It is about time. It's about effort. It's about money. And most of all, it's about moving proactively. And just like 2007, 2008, when many analysts, including myself, were calling out to take action to avoid the crash, nobody's listening today either. Most people are just trying to wait it out as though it will go away like magic. And just like 2006 to the present, Millions of homeowners and tenants are going to get screwed again by Wall Street banks as they continue to siphon off our wealth, our lives, and our future. The big difference is that in 2006, I was giving a hypothesis, a theory that could not be directly proven yet. Today, it's proven. Back then, I set up they would not reveal any paperwork on the loan until they were ready to go into foreclosure. And I knew that because they didn't have any paperwork and would only create it when they needed it. I was right. Back in 2006, I said they were fabricating, falsifying, forging, and recording false documents. I was right. Back then, I said there was no securitization at all And there was no debt at all because the debt was never sold, even by the homeowner in most instances. On this, I was almost completely right, but not quite. I'll correct that in this broadcast. Back then, I said that any named creditor arising out of claims for securitization was fake. I was right. 
So I'm working hard on creating a better defense narrative for homeowners who are being coerced and intimidated into giving up their equity, their homes, their lifestyle, just so more Wall Street executives can take home higher bonuses. So here is the latest in this show in my never-ending quest to write the best possible narrative for the defense. I start with the underlying premise that if you don't give the court an alternative to simply denying enforcement, then the judge is going to look for ways to rule for the named claimant that is seeking foreclosure. So in other words, what I'm saying is you have a higher burden than just defeating the case against you. You need to give the reason, uh, the judge a reason why ruling in favor of the homeowner is not such a bad thing. That comes in the form of reformation if you ever get to that point. But before you do that, you have to attack, attack, attack. It isn't fair, and it certainly is not the law. It's not the way the law is supposed to work. But virtually judges, virtually all judges start with the proposition, you owe the money, you didn't pay, and that the appropriate remedy is foreclosure because somebody lost money. While in most cases, in civil court, a defendant could simply say, prove it. And that would be enough to force the claimant to prove their case. That is not what is happening in foreclosure courts. Complaining about it is not enough. You have to do something about it. We have tried attacking it on technicalities, side-swapping the obvious. Today, I announced that it is time to go bold and simply call it out for what it is, an illegal scheme, and then describe the scheme with such particularity that it is impossible for the court not to grant you the right of discovery. Don't try to win the case by having the court declare that securitization is illegal. You'll never get that ruling. Keep in mind that if the time for discovery has passed and you need uh, to come to a legal consultant or lawyer to help you figure out a way that might convince the court to allow discovery on the one central point to all foreclosures, the status and ownership of the debt. This show presents essential questions that are and soon will be the subject of thousands of cases in, for, in new foreclosures, which thus far, those questions have not been resolved. Considering the current state of affairs, which points strongly to a tidal wave of foreclosures greatly exceeding that of the recession of 2008-2009, it's time to look at alternatives to the rocket docket approach of the past, get the cases into complex litigation, and that starts with the assumption that the homeowner 
the, the, the incorrect assumption by the court that the homeowner is wrongly depriving a true claimant of their right to receive payment. That assumption is wrong. And homeowners that make that assumption are basically admitting against their own interest facts which are untrue. It appears that those facts are true. They are not. Virtually all courts are allowing a designated creditor to bring a claim for foreclosure rather than a real creditor who has paid value for the underlying debt in exchange for ownership. We see exceptions to this with city mortgage and so forth that does not introduce the securitization, even though it's there. There are ways in discovery to get past that. We all know it, and yet the courts are doing it, and it seems that nobody, including myself, has come up with a program defense that lawyers will embrace a defense and set of claims that will bring fame and fortune to the lawyers and their clients. What I'm about to present is not theory. It is a simple application of law to incontrovertible facts as applied to any situation in which a claim is made to administer, collect, or enforce a debt where the claimant is named because it arises because of some claimed securitization chain. I do not dispute that a securitization scheme was launched, contrary to what I have said earlier. There was a securitization scheme. It's just that it didn't securitize any homeowner debt. Securities were issued they derived their value from assumptions that were made about the data that was to be reported about the debt, not the ownership of the debt. It's clear that in no case was any debt of any homeowner ever securitized because that would involve a sale of the homeowner's obligation. That sale never occurred. The contents of this show is based upon a review, analysis, and investigation of thousands of actual foreclosure cases and hundreds of articles and treatises published by real-time lawyers and law professors who have won and lost foreclosure cases to the banks. Like I said, I have won most of the cases in which I appeared as the lead attorney or co-counsel or the legal consultant. Fact number one, there is not a single case anywhere in which there has ever been proof of payment for the debt. I'm talking from the year 2000 to right now, August 20th, 2020. Not a single case in which there's ever been proof of payment for the debt. In most, it's always presumed. In most cases, there is not even any direct or implied allegation that there has been payment for the debt. 
It is always presumed to have occurred. Fact number two, in the context of transactions with homeowners labeled residential home mortgages, second mortgages, home equity line of credit, most, nearly all of them, involve no payment to the homeowner from anyone who receives any right, any title, or any interest in any obligation of any homeowner. Fact number three, at the conclusion of the securitization cycle, no person or company maintains any account in which it claims legal ownership of the underlying debt. This is very important. No person or company maintains any account in which it claims legal ownership of the underlying debt. Fact number four, foreclosures involve the naming of a designated or nominated creditor in the context of supposedly securitization schemes. They involve the naming of a designated or nominated creditor like MERS. Not a creditor. That's why they tried to use MERS. They tried to use uh, servicers. That all failed. Now they're using trustees. They don't have any interest either. There's no creditor who has suffered any loss of any kind resulting from any action or inaction by the homeowner. So let's take these things one by one, and I'll tell you four things about each of the four facts. How to remember them, what it means in the world of finance, what it means in the world of law, and what to do about it. By the way, in the world of finance, how do I know that? It's not just by having interviewed insiders. It's because I worked on Wall Street. I was an investment banker. I participated in meetings where the seeds of this scheme were discussed and developed. I know what happened. I know why it happened. And I know what the goal was. It was the Holy Grail. If you could sell stock in your life and keep the money, you would too. That's basically what the investment banks did. Fact number one, let's go back over it. No purchase of debt by anyone. The way to remember this is by asking yourself the question, what was the reason I was given money or credit? By now, you know the answer is that they wanted you to issue a note and mortgage that they could use for a securitization scheme. Not because they wanted to make a loan. You wanted a loan. They didn't want a loan. And they didn't end up with a loan. But you think you did. But guess what? All loans require mutuality. And if you think you ended up with a loan and the other side thinks they didn't, then there is no loan. Doesn't mean you don't have an obligation. It just means there's no loan agreement. In the world of finance, Getting you to issue the note and mortgage without creating a loan account on anyone's books enabled them to reduce the risk of liability for lending violations 
because without a loan account, nobody is a lender. In the world of law, this means that there is no party withstanding. Although the debt was, in actuality, retired, and I say that because there's no loan account, so the debt is retired even if it isn't technically extinguished completely. Although the debt was retired, the retirement might be temporary. But without a creditor who can truthfully plead and prove that they are in fact the owner of the debt because they paid for it, they have no basis for asserting any financial injury arising from the action or inaction of the homeowner. No injury means no remedy. That means no claim. And no claim means no standing. That means dismissal. What you do with this truth is you can assert it as a defense or even a counterclaim, but the most important thing you do is to go through the basic steps that appear on my blog and ask the question, what is the name of the creditor who paid value for my loan in exchange for a conveyance of ownership of my loan? So the fact that somebody paid money is not enough. Did they pay money in exchange for having the note and mortgage paid to them? Did they pay money in exchange for an assignment from an asinor who owned the debt, note, and mortgage? That's what you want to know. You do this through the administrative options and the legal options. Administrative is qualified written request under RESPA, debt validation letter under the Federal Debt Collectors Act, complaints to the Consumer Financial Protection Board, your state attorney general, and then in discovery and litigation. When you ask questions in discovery, don't expect an answer. They're not going to give you one. They can't give you one. It is only after they refuse to answer that you can seek an order compelling them to answer. So you have to file a motion to compel. And only after they violate that order, which they will, then you can raise the inference in a motion for sanctions that there is no creditor, at least in the case against you. Once you raise the inference, the legal presumption that the court was using is gone. But you have to ask the court to do that. The presumption is gone that the claimant owns the debt, and the presumption is gone that they have standing. Now they have to prove it with real evidence instead of presumptions, and they can't do that because there never was a transaction in which this claimant that's now asking for judgment against you or a sale in a non-judicial state, there's no transaction in which the loan was purchased. Fact number two, plenty of people paid money for plenty of things, but none of them paid for your loan in exchange for receiving ownership of the debt, note, or mortgage. That's how they avoided lender liability. That's how they avoid servicer liability. The only exceptions are the very early loans from 1996 to around the year 2000, which were, in fact, legitimate loans which were then purchased from homeowners. 
from the actual lenders. But then the debts were retired when the investment banks paid off the lenders without getting ownership of the debt note or mortgage. The way you remember this is that gut feeling you have that they are out to screw you. They're doing this for profit, not to repay any debt which was retired long ago. The fact that someone paid money doesn't mean they paid for your loan. If I buy groceries at the supermarket, that doesn't mean I bought your car. If I buy a tire from your car, it doesn't mean I bought the car. And just to make you feel a little more comfortable with this, keep in mind that there is no transaction that is exactly in the amount of your loan in which the debt, note, or mortgage was purchased, except for those early loans, which I mentioned. The company that you signed off on as the payee on the note or the mortgagee on the mortgage had nothing to do with the money that was used at the closing table. And just as important, the investment bank that put the money on the closing table did not receive or ever intend to receive or maintain ownership of the debt, note or mortgage, because it wanted to stay remote from liability for lending violations under federal and state law. In the world of finance, the debt is retired, but the data is still used as if the debt account still existed, even though there is no loan account maintained by anyone. This enables the investment bank to continue to sell variations on the data infinitely without ever crediting any loan account, which cannot be done because the loan account it doesn't exist. It's not there for anyone to enter a credit. In the world of law, this means that the state statute adopting as state law the provisions of Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code is not satisfied. That statute says that it is a condition precedent, which means before you can file for foreclosure, this must be true. So the condition precedent to filing foreclosure is that the claimant must have paid value for the underlying debt. No such transaction occurred. Therefore, in addition to standing, you have a failure of a condition precedent, very important in the law. What you do about this is you attack the context of the transaction in which the Debt could have been purchased. Again, administrative debt validation letter, qualified written request, complaint to CFPB, complaint to AG Consumer Division, and legal discovery in court. You ask for the date and the the people involved in the transaction and for production of the proof of payment. You're not going to get answers to any of that. When you don't get an answer, you follow the plan. Motion to compel, motion for sanctions, raise the inference that there is no party who paid value in exchange for receiving a conveyance for ownership of the underlying debt. Fact number three, no loan account. Everyone makes the same mistake here. 
servicer comes to court with what it says is the loan account. That's not the loan account. There's not a single entry on any of those records that establishes the homeowner transaction as an asset entry on the books of record of any company. There isn't any such bookkeeping entry anywhere else because there is no loan account. The way you remember this is that the investment banks were not out to make a loan. The investment banks were out to do investment banking. That means create, issue, sell, and trade securities. They could care less about the existence of the loan account because they were getting paid through the sales of securities that were betting on the data arising from your transaction, not from the income or loss of income from your payments. In the world of finance, this is the layered or laddered approach that Goldman Sachs is proprietary. In truth, they didn't invent it. I was doing it on Wall Street long before they started using it. By converting assets to mere data, they could layer the, the data into component parts like selling electrons as a group from many different atoms. The rule of thumb I use based upon analysis of the shadow banking market is that this alone resulted in the receipt of more than 12 times the amount of any homeowner transaction. And that's why they don't care about the existence of the loan account or who theoretically owns it if it is ever resurrected. In the world of law, this means that the investment banks must fabricate the existence of the loan account. They must falsify transfer of the loan account and they must misrepresent the status and ownership of the loan, making, the subject, making them subject to sanctions and claims for damages. But since they never appear in any actual court case against the homeowner, this is often missed by lawyers and pro se litigants. What's missed is that an indispensable party is missing. The whole purpose of the foreclosure is profit to the investment bank. Any claim they make about that this is being done for investors is a complete fabrication. It's not true. The investors don't see one penny from foreclosure. What you do about it is carefully examine the documents upon which they are placing reliance and pick out inconsistencies and descriptions of signers that are too vague to mean anything, and then follow the plan. Qualified written request, debt validation letter, CFPB complaint, AG consumer affairs complaint, discovery, motion to compel, motion for sanctions, motion in limine, where you are entitled to the inference that they don't have standing or any claim. Fact number four. The named claimant is not a creditor. It is a nominee of the investment bank which doesn't own the loan account. Keep that in mind because all the other facts will fall into place once you accept this as fact. The way you remember this is by asking the question, who is this, when you're presented with a claim? The vast majority of lawyers and pro se litigants forget to ask this essential question, and then follow up on it. In the world of finance, this enables a diversion of money for the front and profit of all the foreclosure players without one cent going to any investor who ever paid value. 
although some of them paid value, uh, obviously, for worthless certificates. In the world of law, this means that the investment bank should be brought in as an indispensable party for reformation of the total transaction into an enforceable contract as to all stakeholders. What you do about this is ask the same questions, but with the intention of establishing the inference that the named claimant is not suing for itself, but is rather suing for someone else. In other words, that trustee, that service, whatever, they're not suing for themselves, they're suing for someone else, which is an admission that they don't have standing. Remember, there are no guarantees in litigation, and all homeowners have an uphill battle. Anyone that offers you a guarantee of results is operating a scam. Get a lawyer. That's it tonight. As always, thank you for your continuing donations and support. Uh, make a donation by going to the homepage of the blog, livinglies.me. Good luck, and see you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.